morning. Get to be in God's word today, and we're going to continue our series in Isaiah 53, which we haven't actually got to Isaiah 53 yet, even though we started last week. We did a lot of context, and this morning we're going to do some more context for a bit, but I promise you, eventually, we're going to get into the text that Ruth just read. We are doing the series called The Great Exchange, that Christ got what we deserved, and we, those who would receive his free gift of grace, would get what he deserves. As we're talking about this, we're looking at this letter from the prophet Isaiah who talked about this future sign, the servant, and the savior 700 years before Jesus was born to Mary. My hope this morning is that as we unpack this, that this, this crazy thing that was written that Jews had heard about in, in the context in which they heard about it in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament was painting the picture of someone who was to come and then when he came, they missed it. And here we are 2,000 years later, and how easy would it be for us to miss it as well? Isaiah was a prophet that in this time was considered a bit of a failure. He proclaimed to the nation of Israel their absolute need for a king who was to come, but as he described who this king was, many wanted a political king. One that would sympathize and reign, not a king who would build his kingdom through his own suffering, as we'll see today. Isaiah 53 as a chapter has had every verse quoted or alluded to in the New Testament. And as you've heard me possibly say before, this is known as the Romans of the Old Testament. And it, as it is a very in-depth explanation of how you and I, if we've come to Christ, get our justification before a holy and perfect God. Today, as we read this passage, I'd like you to understand that this is a confession. And even though it is written prior to the Messiah coming, it does an amazing job, even if it were an eyewitness account to what happened to Jesus of Nazareth, especially as he hung on the cross. And even though much of it is written in the past tense, it's regarding a future event. And it is a confession that many Jews and Gentiles and believers will confess. And I'd like us to unpack this passage, truly checking our own hearts as we read it, to see if this is a confession that you and I actually have, not through intellectual assent, but through applicable action. The Prussian king, Frederick the Great, was once touring a Berlin prison. The prisoners fell on their knees before him to proclaim their innocence, except for one man. He remained silent. Frederick called to him, why are you here? Arm robbery, your majesty, was the reply. And are you guilty? Yes, indeed, your majesty, I deserve my punishment. Frederick then summoned the jailer and ordered him, release this guilty wretch at once. I will not have him kept in a prison where he will corrupt all the fine innocent people who occupy it. Because so many people refuse to confess what they've actually done wrong, we need to know that if we are unwilling to confess as believers, as followers of Jesus, if we're unwilling to confess, it might be because we don't really believe that we are guilty. In this world today, more than ever, we, the church of Jesus Christ, need to be a people who will confess our transgression and our trespassing outside of God's will our sins. Because if those who are saved by grace can't bring themselves to share with others what they have received, 
How will anyone ever know the right standing with God does not come through human effort, but it comes by receiving God's son and what he has done on our behalf. Now, we're going to study Isaiah 53 over the next few weeks, which for many, again, is the, is the fifth gospel or the Romans of the New Old Testament. A chapter of the Bible who theologians would agree does the best job of describing what justification actually is than any other chapter in all of Scripture. This text was written 700 years before the event in which he seems to be alluding to took place. And Martin Luther once said of Isaiah 53 that this chapter should be memorized by every Christian on earth. So how are you guys doing with that? In fact, Isaiah 53 alone was quoted, you ready? In Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, 1 Peter, and 1 John. That's how much this passage, this specific chapter was quoted. It's about the suffering servant, the one who came and substituted his life for others, if you want to get simplistic. Now, as we get into this incredibly important, incredibly deep, theological, prophetic, Christ-honoring chapter, let me set the stage a little bit more. So in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, that's where we're going to start. Isaiah is divided in two sections, and I'm going to geek out in a few minutes, okay, just so you guys know, because there's certain things in the Bible, like Easter eggs, pun intended, that I get super excited about. But Isaiah is divided in two sections, chapters 1 through 39 and chapters 40 through 66. It's a very long and very detailed Old Testament book. It was written about 680 B.C. or 700 years before Christ. And the first half of the, half of the books, chapters 1 through 39, speak of the coming judgment and captivity of Israel. The 39 chapters where God speaks through the prophet Isaiah, speaking of this judgment upon Israel. That brings us to the second section. 27 chapters remain, chapters 40 through 66. The theme of the second section is grace and salvation. These 27 chapters, starting in chapter 40, are some of the most clear and rich portion of the Old Testament prophecy. And it's really just a single prophecy, one beautiful vision, one majestic revelation of salvation through the coming Messiah. It encompasses the deliverance of Israel from Babylon and deliverance of sinners from sin. So it's pretty important. Most interestingly, this is, most interestingly is the second half chapters, 40 through 66, begin where the New Testament begins. In chapter 40, verse 1, here's what we read. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And that's the turn in the book of Isaiah. From the proclamation of judgment, the first 39 chapters, to comfort in the back half because of grace and salvation. Speak kindly to Jerusalem, it says. And then comes the prophecy in chapter 40, verse 3, of the coming of John the Baptist. Here's what it says. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So, and of course, and we understand this, this is where we know that John the Baptist who came, he was the fulfillment of the prophecy. He was the forerunner of the Messiah. He was the voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, making the desert a highway for our God. And so we know that, according to the, one of the Gospels, that's where the New Testament begins. The New Testament begins with John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. And that's where the back half of Isaiah begins. 
And so this so-called gospel section of Isaiah begins where the actual New Testament gospel begins. Now, this section of Isaiah ends where the New Testament ends as well. This is geek in me. I apologize, but I like this kind of stuff. And this is another remarkable feature because in the 65th chapter of Isaiah, as you're getting to the very end, in verse 17, we read this. For behold, I create new heavens and new earth. All right, you ready? Okay, not geeky enough. Here we go. And then in the final chapter, 66, verse 22 of Isaiah, almost at the very end, it says, For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I make, will endure before me, declares the Lord. Guess where the New Testament ends? Revelation. It ends in Revelation 21 and 22, where the new heavens and the new earth. So the section of Isaiah begins where the New Testament begins it, with the arrival of John the Baptist. It ends where the New Testament ends with the new heaven and the new earth. And not only that, okay, really geeky, you ready? In Isaiah, there's 66 uh, chapters, right? How many books of the Bible are there? What? Okay, so that's pretty exciting. And then there are 39 chapters in Isaiah, speaking of judgment, how many books of the Old Testament are there? 39. Whoa. Chapter 40 of Isaiah and the 40th book of the Bible, which is Matthew, both speak of the coming Messiah. What? And the 66th chapter of the new heaven and the new earth in Isaiah is the same as the 66th book, which is Revelation, speaking of the same thing. And thus we see this magnificent way in which this incredible prophecy parallels the New Testament. And all of it is written, how many years before Christ? 700. Now turn with me back to Isaiah 52. I promise, we'll get to Isaiah 53. It'll just take, you know, a whole sermon last week and 12 minutes in this one. Isaiah 52. As we walk through the prophet Isaiah, what he had to say of the suffering servant, it's important that we read this. Isaiah 52, 13 through 15. Here's what we studied last week. He says, see my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being. And his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and the kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Behold, my servant will act wisely. As we talked about this last week, the servant will complete his mission. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. He shall rise, he shall ascend, and he will be exalted to the right hand of the Father. So the truth is, this Messiah, this king that we're studying about, that Isaiah prophesies about, is not what anyone expected. It was not what people would be looking for, especially based on outward appearance. The highest of worldly authorities would be astonished and have to do something with this Messiah that would come from God. And then he says, for that which has, has not been told them, they will see, and that which they have not heard, they will understand. And it is that that leads into Isaiah 53. So don't take Isaiah 53 out of the context of what was just said. Okay, here we go. Isaiah 53. Only took 52 minutes. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
So you've got these two questions in continuation from the passage that we studied last week. Isaiah is making a proclamation that many people in Israel will not believe the Messiah even when he comes in the flesh. And Isaiah was addressing the people who were without belief. They had spiritual elitism based on their own view of how important they are. And all Christians said, hallelujah, that we don't do that. Isaiah says, who has believed what he has heard from us? It almost sounds exaggerated, but he's calling out the contrast. The many who should believe don't. You see it? They know the scriptures. They've had ample opportunity to see with their own eyes what God was doing. But because of their spiritual pride, they, like many people today, miss what God is doing. Because he rarely, if ever, does things the way that our human nature would. So as we've been going through the book of John, we've seen that those who have ears will hear, and those who don't have ears just can't. And I'm not talking physically, church. Oh, I have ears, I can hear. Not necessarily, because we're talking spiritually. And I don't, but here's the thing. Here's, here's, here's my fear for us as a church in particular. I don't want our application to be that because some people can't hear what God has to say, that we write them off. You picking up what I'm putting down? Even though this is often, if I'm honest, the default setting of my heart to write someone off that can't hear from God. And Isaiah seems, as he's writing this, again, we can't necessarily hear tone, but I assume this, that Isaiah has a tone of grief as he's saying these words. That some would reject this salvation from the Savior who freely gave it to those who would receive it. So it's so easy for us to start to look down on God and start to say, well, why would God allow anyone to spend eternity with him? But the real question is, why would man reject what God has freely given? So this is important to our application as Christians when it comes to those in and around us. My hope is that we like Christ, my hope is that we like Paul, like many theologians over the centuries, would see an opportunity for those around us that don't have a relationship with God. I'm not talking coming into the church service. I'm not talking about giving money in the offering because they feel guilty. I'm talking about being redeemed by the Holy Spirit because they trusted Jesus Christ as Lord. Those who don't have that, we ought to grieve for. Because they've missed it. They've missed what this life is actually all about. Let me be real simple. You want to know what the meaning of life is? Jesus. Just him. It's what it means to know him and to be in relationship with him and to be redeemed by God because of Jesus. So philosophy, you know, exam. There you go. Just answer Jesus. See what grade you get. I hope that we like Christ, would grieve. And then that would point us towards intercession on behalf of those people around us. I've got story after story after story of people in this community, people that are sitting in this room, and you don't even know this, that people super close to you were praying for you, and now you have a relationship with God. Oh, gotcha. (laughs) But we think if only we have the best worship space, If only our building looks a certain way, if only our people are a certain type of people, if they only look a certain way, then people will come to Jesus. No. 
We should grieve for those that are without God, and as we do, it ought to spur us on towards intercession on their behalf. To intercede on for them, and that God would pronounce the goodness of who he is, and that he would save them. So Isaiah says, whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? God's working amongst these people has been consistent. And at least for a believer's perspective, it's been pretty obvious. But unbelief, church, to not believe, unbelief attributes the most obviously providential situation to an accident or a coincidence. Those who don't have belief don't have the eyes to see through the lens of faith what God has actually been. Do you remember when you thought everything was a coincidence? You didn't realize that God was doing the things that he was doing to grow you, to draw you to himself? So excuses, irrational conclusions, they refuse the most obvious supernatural possibilities no matter where the evidence may point. You want to know who the most closed-minded people are? Atheists. You know why I can say that? Because I was one. And I was unwilling to actually engage with what not only the Bible says, but what people who had their lives transformed said. Because I thought all their belief was just procedure. But this wasn't just in Isaiah's time. This is for all time. As long as there is an opportunity to reject Christ, hear me, people will choose to. Based on their own desires, people will not see Jesus for who he is. And will think that people will get so close by doing things like this. You ready? They will crown Jesus as a good teacher. They will say, oh, Jesus is a great man. I got a shirt. He's my homeboy. They will call him a prophet. They'll call him a leader of a religion. But miss the overwhelming signs and evidence and testimony that Jesus isn't just a good leader of a religion like possibly Gandhi or Muhammad or Joseph Smith or even the Pope. But Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but via Jesus Christ. It's his work, it's his word, it's his sacrifice that makes it so we can actually know who he is, and it's him drawing us to himself. So you ready? I'm going to quote... Incredible Hulk from Avengers 1. Are you ready? You will never get more than a puny God if you affirm Jesus' character and refuse his finished work. Some of you are like, it said that in Avengers? Not exactly. (laughs) I don't want you to miss it, though. You'll never get more than a puny God if you affirm Jesus' character but refuse his work. So let me, let me speak on both sides of the fence. Why do so many people refuse to believe in Christ and his work? Because we have a nature that wants to self-justify and to control all things. Why? There has not been an excuse I have ever heard about Jesus and someone's unwillingness to believe, obey, submit, or follow him that wasn't deeply rooted in the fear of handing control over. We may dress it up with reasons not to believe or with anger towards how people representing God have acted, but we don't have a belief problem, church. 
we have a submission problem. And if we're unwilling to submit, confess, and obey, we will just then self-justify as best we can through comparison and straw man arguments. So church, let's not be like the heretics of old. I, I just feel like that's a good idea. Who would treat others who cannot see who Jesus is as the enemy. Let's show compassion for those who are sheep without a shepherd. My favorite excuse when I was an unbeliever, when I was atheistic, when I wanted nothing to do with Christianity, my favorite excuse that I would use was that people who claimed Jesus Christ did not act like they knew him. I made this comment in staff meeting this week that one of the reasons that I believe God has saved me is that I can grasp that he did for me what I could not do for myself, that that has become an understanding of who he is. But it's not because of my theology that I'm saved. Do you hear me? The reason I believe I have a relationship with God is because as a Christian and as a pastor, I've seen behind the veil of Christianity, and it's gross. I've seen the depravity of man. I've seen the depravity of church leadership. I've seen the depravity of attendant attenders. So now I've just called out everybody. <laughs> but I've seen it. And it is only by the Holy Spirit residing in me because by faith that God gave me, I've trusted that Jesus is who he says that he is. And now the Holy Spirit is my seal. Because based on my own flesh, I would have walked away from Christianity a thousand times. But it is only because the Holy Spirit has bonded me to what Christ has done on my behalf. And the depravity of my soul doesn't make me run from God, but God has given me the eyes to see that it should make me run to God and yearn for him to sanctify me more because I want to look more like him. It was him who came to earth. It was him who lived the perfect life that I couldn't. It was him who went to the cross as I should have. It was him who rose from the dead and I couldn't. And it was him who gave me the ears to hear him hear his voice, his commands. It was him who gave me the new heart to want him. It was him who gave me the eyes to see him for who he really is. Here's the great news as a follower of Jesus, and even as a preacher, as someone who gets to open the Bible and teach it to you, God gives you the ears to hear. So if I screw it up, it's not on me. Hallelujah. If I say it incorrectly, if one of us don't answer someone's question perfectly, it's not on us because we cannot save anyone, only Jesus Christ can. And he gives the eyes to see and the ears to hear. All right, that was verse one. Verse two, let's go. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, or in other translations, a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. For he grew up like a young plant. He grew up like a twig, if you will. He grew up, uh, and what's interesting is this language that's being used, it's in the past, but it's also in the completed past tense. Because even though this was 700 years before Jesus was born to Mary, it was planned. God set you up. It was a setup. It absolutely was. God planned this before the foundation of the world was completed. Attempt to wrap your mind around the fact that what you're going through today, God didn't just foresee, he knew. And there's nothing that surprises him. 
There's nothing, because God is not surprised by anything. God is not reactive because of something getting past him. His plan is and will always be perfect. Maybe not the way we want it to be or even how we would do it. But God has and will continue to come through past, present, and future based on his plan, not yours. Jesus grew up. Jesus matured. Jesus was not what the world would expect. He came from humble beginnings. And there was nothing about him that the natural man would attempt to crown him as king for. It says he had no form or majesty that we should look upon him. So I don't know how you think of or how you picture Jesus when I say Jesus, but I have a pretty good guess. It's probably somewhere between baby Jesus, thank you baby Jesus, right? And a very tall, Caucasian, slim, brunette with long flowing hair, a perfect man beard, and a glowing robe. Anyone? And even though that is popular, King Jesus King probably did not look like that at all. Because in the first century Jerusalem, that individual would stand out pretty obviously. And when you read scripture, it looks like Jesus just kind of like blends into crowds all the time. And sometimes it might have been Jedi mind tricks. But sometimes I think he just looked like everybody else. But you know, in scripture, we often see that people didn't recognize Jesus by what he looked like, but they also didn't recognize him even based on his work. There's something to be said about the fact that many didn't recognize him as Messiah. And what we see in scripture, time after time, they missed it. We're in this Advent season. The coming of the king is, is a way of describing that. Where we often substitute the coming of a very important person, a VIP, if you will, who lived a perfect life, died a death in mankind's place, and physically rose from the dead, validating this important person's place in history, we replace him for a fat, jolly man in a red suit who gives away Christmas cheer. And I'm not, I'm not against Christmas. We watched Elf last night. Like, I'm all for Christmas, all right? But the reason for the season is Jesus Christ. And we substitute Advent for a consumer season where receiving presents, having time off from work, and celebrating a fictional character on a sleigh unfortunately overshadows why this time of year is so important. The Christmas story of this Messiah being born to a virgin in a manger and literally being God with us, Emmanuel in human flesh, is God intervening in a world which would reject him. The son was born in the most humble beginnings and God in the flesh humbled himself and became as a baby and a child and dependent upon his own creation. <laughs> and as we heard last week in first service, if, if you were in first service, the, a, a woman in our church said that her husband had been attending church for years but wanted nothing to do with Christ and then started to read through Isaiah 53, starting to realize when Isaiah 53 was written. And there was this moment that clicked for him where he realized that it was God's plan all along. And he repented. And he started to follow Jesus because he could trust a God who had a plan all along that wasn't reactive. So when you assume this life is unjust, okay, or out of control, it is but only if you think you're the one with the control. If you think you're in control, this world will never make sense. And if you don't trust that God is fully in control, this world will never make 
the servant will arrive in lowly conditions and wear none of the usual emblems of royalty. The son's true identity, hear me, is only visible to the discerning eye of faith. So with that, I want to introduce to you, which many of you know him, but I want to invite our very own Kevin Cheng to come up here and share a little bit of his story about how God rescued him. Would you guys welcome Kevin? everybody today? You guys have a good morning? Awesome. Um, in 2010, I was beginning my senior year in high school. And uh, I was a popular hit, a kid in high school who really didn't have a purpose in life other than to honestly just desiring to be liked by others. You know, I was popular because my friendly, outgoing, super ultra extroverted personality. Um, and I was involved with many extracurriculars like ASB. I was in sports. I was in marching band. You name it. Everything I've done, it nerd. I was in drumline, so it was the cool march part of the marching band. Um, however, um, that took a turn in that same year when two incidents happened. One, I got into a huge car accident. I was in the passenger seat, and we totaled a car in front of us. And that made me end up in a neck brace for, you know, actually two months, um, where I couldn't even do any of, extra, any of my extracurriculars. And two, I failed one of my classes which meant I could potentially be in de- uh, I could potentially potentially be denied admission to a university. And to an Asian context, if you don't go straight from high school to a university, that's a no-no, okay? So it was devastating for me in that moment and both these incidents basically took me out of my extracurriculars and I also became very depressed in the process of it. You know, I began to wonder why life had to go this route and I became hopeless. In that same time, all this was happening, I began to cope with all these thoughts, all these, thi- these emotions, with dating girls, with partying, and also just simply acting like life was just good the way it was. You know, during that summer, my good friend Kevin Chen, I'm Kevin Chang, by the way, my good friend's Kevin Chen, I know it sounds really similar, he was going to Trinity Church at that time, and he invited me to a, a, tr- a youth group, a high school youth group scavenger hunt, which is super fun, but here's the thing. I didn't grow up in church, and so my experience with church was two things. Ready? Sister Act 1 and Sister Act 2. A little, 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 re, uh, take you down on memory lane. Um, this was a film by Ruth Gilbert. I don't know if that was actually by her, but, uh, oh, happy day. Oh, happy. Okay, never mind. Let's, let's, let's focus. All right. Anyways, that was my experience with church. But during this season, I met Christians for the first time. And I began to hear testimonies about how God began to change them and, and transform them. And, and I witnessed grown men and women crying during worship. And I was in this moment, I was like, what are these people doing? But that began to make me wonder, man, the, the God that they're worshiping, that they're singing songs to, is, it, is he actually real? And that's when I actually got to meet Tim in that same season. Because he was serving at the, in the youth ministry at that time. And he was in his 20s. <laughs> what? what? Um, and Kevin Chen, my good old friend, kept saying, dude, you got to meet Tim Riley. This guy was a hardcore atheist and now believes in Jesus. And that really began to make me wonder. And so I got to meet, I got to meet uh, Tim for the first time at Wingstop. And after I had heard his testimony and as he be- simply began to answer questions, 
I've had about faith and religion and Jesus in, in such a respectful and truthful way. This began a three-month process of me, as, as Tim would then meet with me weekly or bi-weekly for the next three months, you know, and she would treat me out as a high school kid because all I was, all I was getting was Little Caesars pizza and ramen, okay? And so for him to treat me out to lunch every single week meant, meant so much to me. And in those times, I remember we would just simply talk about life. We would talk about faith, and he would open up the Bible, not, not forcing it down my throat, but he would really just open up the Bible and it's like, hey, let's, let's discuss this in, a, in such a relatable way. You know, this began, as many of you guys heard about the Panda Express story, um, as after three months of meeting with Tim, Tim decided to take me to Panda Express. It's gross food, but um, I guess, you know, but it's sentimental to me. Um, and we started to read Isaiah 53. And as Tim and I started reading Isaiah, we read in context about the Israelites, how, and just similar to what Tim did this, just this now or even last week, about how the Israelites were looking for the coming Messiah. And, and Israelites were expecting and, and awaiting this, this king that would conquer and, and, and rule and triumph. And as we began to read Isaiah 53, it was actually pretty depressing. I was like, this is totally opposite of what I think of a king is. Just like the, I'm, just I'm sure as the Israelites were too. They were probably confused. You know, why are the, why is this king described in Isaiah 53 like a, a normal dude, you know? But as we re simply read the passage, and he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and by his wounds we are healed. As I read this passage, I began to, saw Je I began to see Jesus. I saw the parallel of the Gospels that Tim and I have been reading and how this Jesus lived a sinless life. He literally took our sins when, she, when we should have deserved death and nailed it on the cross so that we could be made right standing in relationship with him. See, I grew up culturally Buddhist and I was taught all my life that life was about good morals or just be the best person that you can be and you will end up in some sort of paradise. You know, as I read the passage, I realized that it was no longer my strength and my effort and me trying to muster up my faith to find God when God already came, died, and rose again. You know, Tim at one point asked in that conversation, Kevin, who do you think Isaiah is talking about? I replied, Jesus? I didn't say it with that tone, but I was like, I think he's talking about Jesus. Um, Tim said, do you know when this book was written? The book of Isaiah. I was like, nope, but probably thousands and thousands of years ago, if it was actually true. Um, Tim said, 700 years before Jesus was actually born. <laughs> Mind blown. I remember in that moment, I realized that this, this faith wasn't just a Western religion like my parents taught me. It wasn't just something for the Westerners to, to kind of, a, a cultural a religion just to believe in just because we can put a cross on our neck and then just be like, all right, let's go to church on a Sunday or, or knock on people's doors, right? It was something that was actually, that actually happened in real life. That 700 years ago, God, before Jesus was born, Isaiah was already prophesying about Jesus. And man, this is real. Like this has actually happened in history. And in that moment, Tim asked me a couple questions. Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? I said yes. 
do you believe, and he said, do you believe that Jesus died for your sins, rose again, and gave, is giving you new life? I said, yes. You know, which ironically, this is the same question that Tim asked me uh, what, before I got baptized. And how I know that this, my yes, wasn't just a emotion or some sort of feeling, was the moment I said yes, and I went back to campus, which is Fremont High School, whoop, whoop, let's go. Um, I got back to campus, and I found out the girl that I was dating at that time cheated on me. And by cheating, you know, just a little... Remember context, I was in high school, so cheating is very different than what it means here. Like, like the girls, you know, went with another guy, unfortunately. Um, but praise God, because he redeemed me. Um, uh, but in that moment, it was just crazy because I knew that this was a work of the Holy Spirit in me. Is because the moment I found out that she cheated on me, there was this instant forgiveness over. And I was like, what the heck? This is so weird. And, you know, I was trying to process so many things in that moment. But at the end of it all, I simply met and encountered Jesus' unconditional and unrelentless love. I realized that Jesus died for humanity's sins and was humiliated in one of the most brutal ways possible. So that we can be in relationship with him. So how can I be mad at her? How can I be angry, angry when I just realized that I just received the greatest forgiveness of all. You know, with that, just with receiving that forgiveness, what am I do? What are, because of what Christ has done in two, 2019 of, of January, which is next month and a couple weeks from now, so it's, it's really hitting me now, I will be joining an organization called ACTS, uh, which stands for Antioch Center for Training and Sending, that specifically trains and sends missionaries to the 1040 window, which means the most unreached and unengaged, and we'll hopefully going to be going to Nepal for two years, in that sense. But and why Nepal? And I realized as I've been meeting with so many of you guys the last couple months, and I realized that's not the question I should be asking. Not why Nepal, but more so why not Nepal? You know, because of what Christ has done, He has given us not just me but the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. And Nepal is a nation that is in great need. You know, we are all missionaries, except I'll be, a, I'll be a missionary in another country. And Nepal is one of the most unreached nations in the world with a population of 29 million people, with only 1.2% proclaimed Christian. Which maybe that means they've simply either heard about Jesus, received their faith, but who even knows if they're being discipled or not? Who knows if they're actually getting poured into, if they're actually growing into the likeness of Jesus, or are they really just accepting a, a cultural Christianity? You know, for the next few years, I get to share the good news of Jesus and what he has done in a context where many are Hindu and many are Buddhist. And I'm a true believer that God didn't just die for us and rise for us so that we can live for ourselves, But he died so that we can truly live for him. Because I've lived for myself, and let me tell you, when I've lived for myself, it is truly, truly, truly unsatisfying. I don't want to just receive Jesus and be justified by going to church on a Sunday morning, but I want to live for him. Because when you get to live for him, everything changes. You live with purpose, you live with a new identity as a son, as, as a daughter of, of God. You get to live and spend the rest of your life glorifying and worshiping him 
which I guarantee will satisfy your soul. I just want to thank you guys so much because I know as, as I'm going, I'm not going by myself. I'm going because this church, Church of the Valley, is sending me, and this is my, this is my home. You know, and that's why it hits me so hard, you know, because I call this my home. And it's like me leaving my family so I can join another culture, another context where I don't know the language. I don't, don't know the people. I'm not sure if I like, I'll like the food. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't get tacos anymore. Like, that's just devastating. Um, and I just realized, like, man, you guys are the ones that are going to be sending me. And I'm, I'm already so grateful that, you know, COV already has sponsored, you know, half of uh, the finances. And so what I'm asking, honestly, is for the next few, few uh, months at least is uh, if you guys would partner in prayer and, and, and finances with me. Um, you know, it's a huge need. And I just know that God's totally going to provide for it. Um, I'm not even like, I guess, quote unquote, like sad or like, man, like, oh, my God, I need financial. I need, it's like, no, I know God's going to provide. But I just, I just would like love and ask that, you know, um, you guys would be in prayer support for me for that. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm really grateful for this church. And um, I'm just thankful for what he's going to do through me and through you guys. And like I said in my birthday party a couple uh, weeks ago is that, you know, as I'm sending support letters and stuff monthly, I don't want to just hear about, uh, you know, my experience or even write about my experience. But I want to hear what God's doing in Church of the Valley. You know, I, I want to hear emails just like Paul all emailed, but Paul was probably writing letters and, and chains. And, uh, you know, and he's just writing about how the Galatian church, how the, you know, F church in Ephesus, how they're prospering, how, how God's moving through the people. I want to hear about that here. So um, thank you guys. And, um, yeah, God bless you guys. Kevin will be in the back after the service to talk with you and take your money. No, uh, to be able to talk with you if you'd like to partner. And I would highly encourage you to partner with him because this is a work that God is doing in and through him. And one of the things that I loved about what he just said was, I know he has the eyes to see and the ears to hear because he's not just going to go to another country where then he's going to be a missionary. He's been a missionary here for quite some time, making disciples of all nations and generations here. And so now we get to, and I said this last week, we get to send some of our very best overseas to make much of Jesus. And so if we're trying to just gather as many people as possible to feed the pastor's ego, sorry, I didn't mean to say that. No, I did. If the goal is to just get as many people as possible, sending our missionaries is a terrible idea. But if we're trying to see disciples made, and people grow to look more like Jesus, this is a symptom of God's work in this community. And so thank you for being a part of it. Thank you that because of your generous giving, we could actually fund half of what Kevin is going to be doing, but we want to encourage you to personally partner with him as well. Verse 3, we're almost done. Isaiah 53, verse 3, the prophet Isaiah says, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, in extra spiritual version, ESV, it says sorrows, and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. This servant is considered worthless, not worthy of his attention. His rejection is literally abandonment by men, is what Isaiah implied. But not just any men, 
The language lends itself to the important individuals, the kings and the authorities who shunned him, that would hide their faces from him because he did not fit within the box of what they thought a king ought to be like. He was despised. He was rejected. And the prophet perceives the hatred and rejection by mankind towards this Messiah, towards this servant who suffered not only external abuse, but also eternal grief over the lack of response from those he came to save. The rejection that Jesus received at the hands of the actual people he came to save is incredible if you start to think about it. In fact, when we were, we've been studying John for millennials, or millennia, yeah, centuries, John chapter 1, verse 10 and 11 says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And why not? Why wouldn't they diss him, if you will? He was not what they were expecting. He didn't do it the way that mankind would have done it. He loved and shepherded and cared for those that would spit in his face. Men hid their faces from him and wanted nothing to do with him. We esteemed him not. We did not see his beauty, his majesty. And to this first century onlooker, Jew or Pharisee, they looked at him being put on the cross and they thought that was judgment based for him. But we understand that the reason he hung on that cross was for us. So I got one question for you. It's in your, your bulletin, and it's a question I want you to think about as we're about to partake communion. What is it about Jesus that you reject? I'm not talking about the person who's spending all their time watching football Sunday morning, even though I'm about to go do that. But what about you? What is it about Jesus that you reject? What is it about Jesus, churchgoer, that you reject? Because human nature is to reject authority, to want to control things, to dislike things that are different than you. That is human nature. That is part of our depravity. And Jesus is the authority, and he does have control, and it is by his goodness that we see our depravity. So why wouldn't you reject Jesus? If it's only by grace of God opening your eyes to see who Jesus actually is, that you would see his glory, that you'd see his goodness, and you'd see a word I made up, his godness, but it is only from him doing the work that any of us would come to him. Verse 4, surely he took up our pain and bore our sufferings, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. He carried and took on our trespasses, our sins, our grief, our shame. And over this chapter, as we continue to go through it for the next few weeks, we will see that Isaiah used empathetic pronouns that what the servant would endure was vicarious. It was done for someone else. And yet many who witnessed this punishment to Jesus assumed he deserved it. But he bore our pain. He bore our embarrassment. He took on our shame. He took on our guilt. He took on the punishment that we deserved so that we could be found spotless and holy before a holy and perfect God, not by what we do, but by what Christ has already done for us. 
of Jesus acted out this vicarious atonement. He acted as our substitutionary payment, which made amends. And I'm going to go NLT. I almost never go NLT. We tend to read NIV. It's in the pews. I quote ESV. I study NASB. But NLT I don't like to use very often. But this makes it so simple. So here we go. Romans chapter 3, 22 and 25 through 25. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. You know what it doesn't say? Anything else. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God freely and graciously declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. And people are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life shedding his blood. And then Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we have a Christ that did not expect us to work our way to him, did not expect us to earn his love. We didn't do anything in order to gain his affection. He freely gave it without it being deserved. He gave us grace. He gave us himself. He gave us you. Let's pray. Father, we can literally forget how incredible it is that you got what we deserve and we get what you deserve. And so God, as we are about to partake in communion, I pray, Lord, that you would allow us to hear your word as we, we get to worship in this way.